This is Lexis, the podcast all about linguistics. Hi, I'm Matthew Butler. I'm Jackie Glancy. I'm Dan Clayton. And I'm Lisa Casey. Okay, so we're joined on this episode of Lexis by Dr. Cameron Kahn, who is a Marie Curie Fellow at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark and previously was at the University of Catalonia in Barcelona. And Cameron is particularly interested in an area of linguistics called security studies. And we're going to be asking him some questions about that as part of this, but has, has written widely on a whole range of things to do with sort of discourses around representation and ideas around sort of other areas of sociolinguistics. So welcome to the show, Cameron, and thanks very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on. Okay, so could we just start, Cameron, could you explain to us exactly what are security studies and what's the difference and the uh, crossover with linguistics? Yeah, sure. So security studies is a kind of a branch of international relations and, you know, it's, it's got its own kind of history. And for many years, it was really about the kind of external defenses, you know, it, but mm-hmm. particularly in the Cold War, involving the USSR and, and, and the US, it was a lot about kind of military capabilities and possible nuclear wars in terms of, you know, the arms race and, and things like that. Well, what happened is, as a field, it started kind of developing when, when kind of the fall of the Berlin Wall happened and, you know, the USSR started kind of breaking up. Because that traditional threat that was there was was no longer the kind of threat going forward. Hmm. The main kind of school on this was literally called the Copenhagen School. So actually, by coincidence, (laughs) that's where I am now. They developed this kind of a way of understanding the way the kind of world was changing and the way we were perceiving threats was no longer just kind of Russia and the Cold War. And so they developed this kind of way of looking at securitization, which maybe we'll talk about shortly. And the crossover then with linguistics, really, I think, uh, is the way that the threats are constructed. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot more uh, about kind of perceived threats, for example. Immigration mm-hmm. is an example here, and mobility. And they were developing theories in securitization, uh, and they actually called it a kind of linguistic term, where they, you know, talking about the way that the threats are kind of happen through kind of uh, speech acts, is what they would say through politicians. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because obviously you and I are talking about a threat doesn't carry the same weight as Mm. the prime minister for example Mm -hmm. so it's all those things that go into that and for me when I started getting interested in this in in about 2010 is when I started really feeling I need to study this I I was kind of thinking well in linguistics really we don't really have a security term I mean if they're talking about linguistics in their way then maybe we need to be part of this conversation so right. that's kind of um, how I saw things. Okay and, and you mentioned um, securitization could you just explain um, why the process of securitization is so important and and how would we maybe explain that to an A-level student? Yeah sure so securitization what that really means is that the there'll be various institutions and kind of authorities that are capable of making something require emergency action that almost takes us out of the realm of just everyday politics and now it takes on a kind of significant kind of maybe even kind of emergency type of language so I mean there's various examples of that I mean probably the A-level students won't remember this I'm quite sure (laughs) most of them but the 2003 Iraq war Mm -hmm. for example is an an example of actually a failed securitization at that time, we were told, uh, you may well remember, that the Iraq had uh, weapons of mass destruction that could be deployed within 40, 45 minutes was the, you know, the kind mm-hmm. of emergency thing. So that brings the emergency element into this. Mm-hmm. So ordinarily, Iraq's you know, 
in a different part of the world, but mm -hmm. going about their business. We hear this, so now it becomes an imminent kind of threat. Yeah. So then the next step then is for the government to step in and do something to stop this. And okay. their idea was to go to war, basically, and mm. regime change and, and all of that. Uh, now, the reason why I say that's an example of a failed one, because there were just too many people who didn't leave. I mean, we had the pro we had kind of the biggest protest that mm. we'd ever seen. So in that sense, it kind of failed, but then it kind of didn't because they went to war anyway. Uh, but that's an example of something that ordinarily it was happening and then it's given this kind of uh, so effective becomes it's imminent a security threat so it's that process of making something that's one thing into an almost an exceptional or emergency situation that requires intervention that's quite urgent the kind of interventions that we're talking about then are are sort of legislation by the government or tangible action on behalf of the government to to potentially a foreign nation well not necessarily a foreign nation that's that's one of the changes that's happened in security where there's much more in emphasis on and so yeah quite often it's usually uh, some sort of policy measure there's different schools of thought on this some say that we're always in a state of exception mm -hmm. that we're always having this kind of it's quite kind of called the management of a knees and you know the management of the way that we talk about immigrants or refugees is a really good example of this, where you can't say, well, you know, it's an imminent threat, for example, but there's this constant kind of, you know, uneasy language, you know, if you let too many in, they might, you know, we don't know who we're letting in and mm. the worst things may happen. So that's just to point out that there's more than one way of looking at securitization. So there's the kind of Copenhagen kind of way of looking at it, which traditionally was in, in the original theory, is that something kind of rises up, rises up in terms of priorities and we need to take emergency action. Uh, the environment is another good example of this. Yeah. And so if we don't take action by the year, you know, 2050 or wherever, this will be the kind of situation, you know, a bigger hole in the ozone layer, whatever it may be. Mm. Therefore, we need to step in now to do something. So that that's kind of like the Copenhagen way. And then you've got other ways of managing insecurities, let's say, where it's just this constant kind of flow of, you know, what makes us unease, what makes us have, you know, be really uneasy about things. And uh, immigration, example of that, where it's just this constant flow of, well, immigrants did this and uh, mm. today they did this. And, and so you've almost got this kind of one figure that just kind of does everything, you know, almost in a way, you know, it can, it can be a multifaceted kind of uh, figure of, of, of various kind of problematic futures that lie ahead. And the kind of linguistic framing of that, can be in a number of different ways, I suppose. You've got the, you know, that sort of macro level stuff where it's the whole idea is sort of introduced as like a sort of discourse maybe, but then presumably there's also kind of more micro level things about how particular, you know, words are used or how particular processes are created through language. Yeah, so th that's always, so that's where the kind of, I think the cross, you know, with crossover between kind of international relations and linguistics kind of can work well mm -hmm. because traditionally international relations if you ever speak to most people from you know study that they tend to want to deal with the macro level yeah uh, you know that bit you know what they see as the big issues whereas when we study language we do it at a very local kind of you know intimate level sometimes and so you know all those things kind of merge into each other you know but there's this really great book called suspect communities i believe it's called by nicole newen from the u.s and she talks about this thing called the uh-oh feeling. Yeah. And that's when something doesn't feel right and you don't know why it doesn't feel right. And that's, you know, sometimes the way certain words are perceived coming from particular people. But, you know, all of that 
for you to arrive at the assumption that the words they're saying are somehow suspicious. I mean, that's decades or years, centuries of, of, of kind of history that's brought us to that. You know? Yeah, yeah. And that's her point that, you know, these, these things aren't just a, a kind of accident or, or whatever, you know? Right. No, that's really interesting because it's that sort of idea that, the you know, it, it's not just down to a word used in a particular specific context. It's what that carries with it. And, and I guess really yeah. nicely into the next question, actually, you've got a really wonderful chapter out called What Does a Terrorist Sound Like? And in it, you talk in a lovely detail about that enemy within discourse that, that you just mentioned. And I guess these sort of ideas have been used for a long time to identify groups that have been othered by various uh, governments or administrations or even countries you know kind of communists in the mccarthy era miners in britain in the 1980s muslims you know post 9-11 and you might even argue sort of the woke left by certain you know areas of the of the british press now how does this work maybe with a specific emphasis on on muslims then and does that tie into that securitization issue that we just talked about yeah so i'm old enough that you know i had lived a significant part of my life before 9-11 so you know you kind of see the watershed moment as someone as a Muslim why would say I mean in terms of Muslims you know if you look at you know take the big picture of the history you know they've always been you know othered within Europe you know I live in Spain for example and you know there's this massive othering and kind of rejection of uh, the Muslim history here for example yeah you know? and so there's that kind of you know that level of things so when people are able to draw on those tropes as they were readily were able to do after 9-11 but you know that that comes from that bigger history you know and mm. my own life just just to kind of bring some context into it for so I was about 21 when 9-11 happened so you know for most of my life I was kind of I felt like I was defined by ethnicity and being British Pakistani you mm. know into even in so if I think about the racial slurs that I would have suffered mm. they were mainly mm. you know to do with being Pakistani right and and then you know that's still that's still always there but what happened after 9-11, it almost kind of, it kind of became religiousized, if that's a, you yeah. know, a word, but uh, then it became about faith and, you know, a lot of, you know, actions that, you know, someone like me or the stereotypes around, around me would be more about faith and religion, which obviously ties into all those other things. So, so that's like, on the one hand, what you had then was with 9-11, you had, you know, the worst fears that people had about Muslims and extremism and terrorism, you know, kind of came to fruition. But one of the things that comes across in the literature is that 9-11 in a way is easier in people's heads to get their heads around because it came externally from the US. You know, it's it's kind of, the, there's a kind of thinking, well, it came outside the US, you know, they, they took advantage of all these things. Something like the 7-7 London bombings, mm. it comes from people who came, you know, who lived in the UK. I think two or three of them were, were born in the UK, for example. And so there's this kind of a different kind of fear about that, you know. You can't just say it's those bad people outside. It feels yeah. like, you know, they've come through our education system. They live side by side. So we, we don't know who who might be the next ones, right? And that's mm. kind of been reiterated over time with all these different things. Some things are false. Some things are real, uh, you know. And so that's where it's really done. So what it's allowed people to do is, particularly in the kind of media, is allowed them to attach the kind of worst fears and worse prejudices because every time they can kind of point to say well you know these bombings happened or this happened in this place or these things and it kind of allows them to launder those kind of worst case you know most virulent kind of views and and they basically get normalized and uh, I mean we see that in general with kind of far right stuff anyway mm. um, 
And then within that, obviously, the, the Muslims are kind of the bog devil uh, within all of that because they represent immigration, a different religion, generally non-white population. So it's all these type of things. Uh, so And of course, that's part of the kind of wider normalization of far-right discourses, which is not only about Muslims, right? And it comes, there's a, there's already a kind of tradition of that, isn't there? As we were sort of saying, you know, it, it, it's not, in, in a sense, we're kind of used to those sort of enemy within discourses, aren't we? And so... The fact that that's then sort of co-opted to talk about another group who are already demonised in other ways then just becomes, you know, yet another way to another stick to kind of beat a community. Yeah. So uh, when I uh, so I grew up in Birmingham, as, as you may know, and uh, when I was growing up, actually, the suspect community wasn't us. It was the uh, my kind of Irish kids in my class. Yeah. Um, they were the ones considered, uh, you know, part of the community that was violent and, you know, hated the British, you know, hated mm. the English, for example, mm. and, and all of this. So, you know, these kind of mantles do kind of get passed down, you know, each, each with their own kind of specific, you know, specific kind of elements. But I think then what all of that tells you, if, if there is a kind of changing mantle, is the kind of what remains consistent then is a particular element of British society, right? Uh, and how each, each suspect group also defines this kind of British idea of who they are as well, or English even. Mm. And, you know, at times it's been Jewish populations yeah. at times it's been like you said the minors so you know you got the class element you know within all of that i mean the idea of a suspect community came from criminology in terms of looking at the irish community at that, that time right so yeah so if if on the one hand we do keep in in consideration that there is this kind of changing suspect communities on the one hand but then also you know who how is that defining british society because that's the thing or english or whoever you know whoever's kind of defining who the suspect community is, what does that tell us about them, you know? Because uh, that's the consistency in all of this. Right. So recently, when we've been watching the coverage, certainly of the early days of the um, refugee crisis after the invasion of Ukraine, we've been conscious of some of the coverage of the of the war and how um, reporters have, have, re- have kind of referred to civilised Europe with blonde-haired, blue-eyed Europeans under threat. What kind of linguistic perspectives could be brought to bear on, on issues like these, Cameron? Yeah, I think it's really, really significant. I mean, I think I think it shows how, over time, the term refugee has been quite a dehumanising one, which, is, which this crisis has kind of brought almost some humanity in the eyes of some people, you know, because, I mean, the, the fundamental thing if we think just in terms of linguistics it's always been about how they can't you know assimilate with us mm. and what you have a, here probably you know for an unusual case is that the Ukrainians are considered in in, in ways that you know maybe someone from Syria is, is, is not e- even those you know there are Syrian Christians for example mm-hmm. but it's not really you know as we know about that so I think the way in terms of how that kind of us and them dichotomy is is encoded through different kind of terms uh, yes. i think is, is really significant i think even the co- i mean even if you to do the Im- you know images you know that we see you know very humanizing kind of stories and images of you know people and their families and you know, mm. you know these type of things traveling together and i think what's i mean if, you know this is a podcast for a level students i think what would be really interesting is is kind of more deep analysis of, of how does that take place then, you know, and, th- and there'll be obviously different ways that this is going on. But I think the fundamental thing, which, you know, in terms of the work that I've done and I've talked about is this fundamental thing, which is that Muslims or refugees, you know, which is sometimes encoded as Muslims, are incapable of living with us and being like us. And that's kind of getting turned over on its head here with uh, Ukrainians because they are refugees and 
at the same time, they are considered uh, to be one of us who are capable of living like us. And, and that's not to say that Ukrainians won't suffer discrimination as well, you know, once, mm. you know, because there's kind of hierarchies of Europeanness mm. and, and everything that entails as well. And so I think, I think those things would be really interesting in terms of images, in terms of the words that you use. I think uh, as well, the, the, the way children have a voice in this, I think it's really interesting. You get to hear kind of children's accounts about things. And I wonder whether too, there's a, a gender aspect to this as well, where you know the, a lot of the men have stayed in Ukraine. You know that's right. kind of the narrative. Uh, so you're hearing, you know, people are able to be quite sympathetic to mothers, you know, traveling with children or, or, or these type of things. Whereas, you know, one of the things that I've noticed, at least in Spain, for example, is the role of um, mayorcages tends to bring a love, you know, kind of negativity from Spanish uh, newspapers, you know, and, mm. and things like that. So I think there's just so many different things that we could analyze on this. And I think A-level students, for example, in the a really great place to be able to spend time looking at these things. So I think they're really good examples of, of the way that kind of discourses can be quite encoded for, you know, racially as well, and in terms of gender, in terms of class, all those things. What you made me think about there was thinking about it at a kind of narrative level and, and thinking about, you know, what stories are told and, and the choices of those stories. And I think that's something that the A-level mm. students could could do a lot with really i think also one thing i find interesting and i've just tried to start writing about it more is the role of listening mm. and you know how people get conditioned in the way they listen to people's narratives as well so you know why is it that you know newspapers know that people will listen to ukrainians talking about their story but you know not necessarily someone from somalia for example in, in mm-hmm. the same way so so the also the way we listen i think is, is really interesting but there's a whole politics around listening as a kind of means to solidarity as well that when we listen to someone, we're willing to empathize with them. Mm-hmm. So if they have a kind of stake in the narrative, then it's much easier to empathize. Yeah. Or if they kind of dehumanize to the point that we never hear them or we or we don't have the empathy to, mm-hmm. to want to hear them. Mm-hmm. And we might want to look about the social factors that, that bring us to that situation, really. And that whole idea as well of listening, I mean, we've come across that, I think, recently as well in stuff that Julia Snell and Ian Cushing have done about the, the sort of idea of the, the white listening subject. And that sort of idea, communication is is not just a one-way street of somebody, say, say with accent and dialect or something like that, or non-standard English. It's not about just the person who's speaking or writing. It's also about the the person who's listening and the the ears and eyes they're kind of listening with and the position they have and they take on the voice of the other person and, and all of the things that are sort of encoded within that person's position. Mm. Is that something um, you think sort of relevant to this as well? Yeah, absolutely. There's examples of, I think it comes up in the, the Trojan Horse podcast, which is in a school saying that he would give or they would give alms, A-L-M-S, to the oppressed if they were going to help someone, which was interpreted as arms, A-R-M-S, to the oppressed. And so, you know, what conditions someone to make that kind of leap? That I mean, that child was reported, I think, to, to prevent as well, I think. And, you know, what, what conditions someone to think that a child would want to talk about arms, for example. Mm. So, our, you know, whether we like it or not, our way of listening is conditioned, you know, and obviously, you know, by the kind of people who say these things, and how we perceive them. So in the, um, the Trojan Horse podcast by the by the New York Times, they used the example of an example of an Islamic takeover in Birmingham was the fact that children were choosing Arabic rather than French as modern language. And this was kind of exact, you know, this kind of like, again, it's that unease, you know, that, you know, French, this kind of cosmopolitan European language is getting mm. elbowed out. And, you know, Arabic is coming in to replace it. 
Now, choosing Arabic or speaking Arabic in itself is not a crime or it's mm. not an indicator. There is no evidence to suggest that if you learn Arabic, you know, it's as we know, it's a you know massive language, lots of speakers. But once you listen to things with this feeling that it's, Muslims are taking over, mm. now it sounds quite different. Now, now it sounds like there is a plot, there is, you know, there's something unusual going on. And, you know, we're talking about schools that were 98% Muslim, so it shouldn't be that big a surprise, right? So... That's what I mean in terms of, you know, how listening can be conditioned in that way. If, if you perceive, or let's say perceive rather than even, even listen, if you perceive things as, you know, just kids making the decisions about what's the easiest way to pass an exam, you know, I don't know. But you, you, as you know, you do with A-level students, you know, they may, it may just be a pragmatic thing of, you know, what's going to be most useful or easiest, mm-hmm. whatever. But if you start putting the kind of uh, conspiracy thinking on it, you know, then everything kind of fits in with that narrative, right? So that's how we, we would perceive those things going on. And so we're adding security maybe there where it probably doesn't necessarily exist. So just moving on to stuff you've, you've done recently on language tests. You, you, you said, I think in, in one of the papers you've written about language tests, that UK language tests have become a shibboleth. So in what ways have they become a sort of test of belonging and identity, do you think? And for those of us who haven't had to take them, what, what do they actually involve and how are they administered? Yeah, so I, I think you're referring there to the citizenship test. And so, so the test in itself is basically, there's a book called The Life in the UK Test. Uh, sorry, Life in the UK Handbook. So it has all these kind of facts about life in the UK. Yeah. However you want to that. <laughs> That's another one for the A-level students to want to have a look at, you know, what's life in the UK. In the UK, we drink tea. so it's kind of a genre in itself because you don't normally get the chance like a nation doesn't normally get the chance to just give out it's like just blurt out its narrative about what it thinks about itself right so it's it's a really interesting genre in itself and you've got different ones around the world canada um, australia spain has one now as well and um, they've got their own kind of characteristics uh, as well so it's it's so it's think of it a bit like the driving test you've got your theory book and then you've got to take your multiple choice test I mean, that's basically, I think there's a speaking and listening requirement now as well. So the reason in terms of, you know, why is it a ship of a thing? It's just not like a test like this is not just a test. Yeah, it's not mm-hmm. just passing. It, you know, there's more to it. It's part of a whole apparatus, social, you know, social political apparatus around what it means to be British. If you're defining who's British, then who's not British? Yeah. And you're using this kind of test partly within the, you know, the wider citizenship that process the kind of you know a point where you cross over now you are British so I mean all tests have that element you know taking an A-level test and then afterwards you you've now got a status you didn't have before Hmm. Uh, the difference between this is because it's such a political kind of stake in this uh, about being a British citizen and so so one of the things that people have kind of been conditioned now to believe is that this test is you know you, you have to have it but then if you take a look historically, what did we do then when we didn't have a test? I mean, we had this whole history and people still became British citizens. So then you have to ask yourself, why do we have the introduction of this test at the time it was introduced? And what we also had in 2001, just a few weeks before 9-11, was there were riots in uh, three cities uh, in the north of England, mainly British Pakistani kind of youths and far-right extremists and the police. So there was kind of like this tension over the summer. And what the, what the response from the government was, was that, that these, com- these communities had kind of fallen apart. And the exact phrase that's kind of uh, being used a lot was parallel lives, that were parallel lives and parallel communities between English, so it means you know, mainly white, and migrant communities, mainly British Pakistanis. And so what we needed now was because of you know, this tension that had been building, one of the reasons for that tension was the lack of a common language. And so we needed now ways of bringing these communities together. So 
the, the, that was the introduction of the citizenship test was one way of doing that. And then if you just follow that kind of discourse about fragmented parallel lives, you can see, you know, if any A-level students want to, you know, follow this. Broken Britain was the thing uh, Cameron mm. used to talk about a lot, wasn't it? Mm. And these kind of, kind of metaphors kind of feed into each other. And then this idea of separate, you know, parallel lives, there's, you know, so many different versions of this, for example, like no-go zones amongst Muslims, ghettos in the France, you have the anti-separate separatism law for example so there's this kind of uh, constant ongoing kind of I don't want to say war but there's constant, constant tension about people living separately right so the test is supposed to be one way of, of doing that so for any A-level people who are ever interested in looking at tests in more detail the way I normally do it is just to break it down into various dimensions so you've got the test itself which is what I generally term as the technical aspect so like the nuts and bolts of the test what do you need what do you need to pass what's the information you need uh, you've got the kind of ideological element, which is in terms of language, what, what's it trying to promote about the kind of language aspect? So in this, in this kind of example, it's that Britain has a kind of level of English that it functions at as a minimum. And that really you can't truly be British until, until you've kind of crossed over to be able to, to reach that level. And it also tells kind of people that maybe well, their other languages are not so important in the UK. Mm-hmm. And then there's a symbolic aspect that, you know, of course, you know, you want to become British, you have to do the, you know, all you have to do is pass the test. People like, a lot of politicians as well, like to see this kind of effort or deserving element of things, that you've done the things that you need to do to pass it. So all of that then, if you think of it in those terms, as different dimensions, and I often um, position it as a kind of bordering technique, because once you cross that border, then you have the status, you have, you know, your life becomes easier with with the things that you get as a citizen, you know, in terms of voting, in terms of mm. the things you have access to, even on a civic level. But then you can see it's a border because there's a kind of a spouse reunification test as well you may need to take if you're from outside of the European Union and in uh, non-English kind of dominant countries. So if you fall in love, let's say your partner is in, I don't know, India or China, for example, they would need to go and take a test there before they could come to the UK and, and that's just one of the other kind of kind of other kind of requirements so you can see the way that the border is being pushed out there and then we've seen today for example with uh, I don't know if you've seen what's happening in Rwanda with Priti Patel again other examples of pushing the borders out so you can see again they're not just English tests they work in coordination with these kind of other political objectives. Is that is that sort of what you mean when you talk in in one of your papers about English as a shared language sort of becoming sort of acquiring this mythical essence it it sort of stands as authenticity for nationalism is that what is that sort of what you meant by that? Yeah so one of the things again if you think about the timing of the introduction of the you know is this 2000 and you know early 2000s right and so when you say things like this is the life in the UK which you know in reality is a kind of fiction in itself because we all live quite differently and you know all you know all these things let, let's say let's go back to the idea of a narrative there's a narrative of, of being you know of, of what life is in the UK then you know you look for things that bring essence to that you need an origin almost to all of that and you know English is one of those things Learn, learning English in, in England uh, with all the kind of resources it gives you access to through citizenship for example that makes people's lives easier, right? But the thing is, is whether it becomes a point of discrimination. And uh, one of the things Derrida talks about is, he calls it the terrifying ambiguity between belonging and discrimination. Okay, you know, when you build that kind of idea of uh, belonging, then automatically it discriminates in some way against someone and some groups. And so I think my point is to be attentive to that because, you know, uh, 
I guess most languages do have that those properties. You know, there's no language that doesn't. It's just the extent to the injustices it can it can it can damage to people because you can't compare that to a minority language, for example. Even though you know, even though the all languages have the capability to make people belong or discriminate and exclude, uh, they they just kind of cases in their own rights. And English is a very very unusual case in that respect in England so I guess as well maybe maybe it's just an element to the sort of language side of the citizenship test as well where you've got because English is so widespread around the world you still got you you might have people who are extremely fluent speakers of English and writers of English in a non-standard variety and they've been judged by a quite a kind of almost obscure sort of standard in in English English in the sense that it's actually quite a minority language around the world, the kind of variety that's, you know, that there's the standard English of, of the UK. So is, is there a sort of angle to that, which is, is perhaps kind of problematic as well for linguists? Well, one of the things is the test assumes that the that this kind of sample through the test is, is representative of, mm. of like life in the UK. Yeah. So I did a project with, at the University of Leicester, uh, an ESRC project about, you know, we, we interviewed 158 people uh, uh, about you know their experiences of the test, for example, and uh, and you know we had some cases where I you know I would do like an hour long interview with someone clearly functioning you know extremely well, and you know other issues came into it. Computer literacy, for example, you know makes a big assumption that everyone knows how to use a com- you know has access yeah. to a computer and these things, and uh, you know people are con- contributing to the community in other ways. Yeah, you know, that can be measured. You know, there are other things. Mm-hmm. But there's one case in particular where I was um, talking to someone and they were a, I think they were a teaching assistant in a, in a school and, you know, quite clearly, you know, someone who's integrated between the speech marks or whatever and, you know, was really struggling with the test. And, uh, you know, you know, obviously without being there, I don't know why that would be, but this person had, you know, failed a few times. It was now getting to a point where it was starting to become like a real pressure, but obviously in their job, they were functioning, you know, fantastically mm. and, mm-hmm. you know, contributing. So, you know, people can contribute to British society beyond that test, mm. even linguistically. And and I think, I think that's where the symbolic aspect of all of this comes in because people want to see the certificate. Right. So what's your favourite book about language? My favourite book about language is The Dialogic Imagination by Mikhail Bakhtin. Um, nice, easy one. <laughs> yeah yeah well you know the, the book in itself is not not necessarily easy so you know there's a really good introduction book by sue vice and do, if you want to just see it in action uh, in, why i find it interesting there's a uh, discourse and power in a multilingual world by adrian blackledge so he, he actually puts it into context uh, mm. you read it in, you read dialogic imagination on itself on its own it's, it's going to be you know, quite a bore but in terms of its ideas you know it's probably been something that like I keep going back to them. And so I was judging in, in that respect. But yeah, Adrian Blackledge's book is, is a really good way of seeing how linguistics and the reformulation of kind of these kind of tropes that we use, uh, we take for granted, play. So he talks he talks about the 2001 riots and the introduction of citizenship. So it kind of fits in with what I've been talking about. And so the concepts he used around back team, he explains really well in that. And the original source of that is obviously the dialogical imagination. So, so yeah, so start slow with that one, yeah. and do you have a favorite linguistic fact or idea yeah so this is a part of Bakhtin's one which is that our our words already have histories and we anticipate voices in the present and the future when when we when we speak ourselves so I've always found that really interesting because it kind of pushes us to move beyond taking for granted what we're saying when we say Mm. it and to really think about you know why do why do these words you know have this resonance these choices that we make you know a lot of the time they're not actually we think that you know it, 
they just by accident but you know sometimes they're really not so um I, i've always really liked that idea you know yeah i love that one <laughs> and what one bit of advice would you give to a budding linguist i would say is don't ever underestimate your unique and your experiences that you bring to whatever it is that you look at and to 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 you know don't don't squeeze that out you know and kind of own that basically because it's one of the one of the most unique things you'll ever have In today's episode of Lang in the News, we are looking at um, an academic paper that's made a bit of a splash as far as academic papers go, in that it was picked up in some in some sort of industry press and garnered comment elsewhere as well. Um, And it came from Julia Snell and Ian Cushing. The paper's called The White Years of Ofsted, a ratio-linguistic perspective on the listening practices of the school's inspectorate, and was published in the journal Language in Society. It's a really, really interesting piece, and we'll link in the show notes uh, where you can go and have a look at the original kind of bit. Mm. Uh, interesting interesting to us for a, for a whole bunch of different reasons, and, and we sort of alluded to it when we spoke to Cameron Khan laid out in sort of the methodology section is a really lovely description of how Julia and Ian actually put this corpus together and then how they sort of scraped the data so to speak so they they were looking at Ofsted reports sort of across time and therefore genealogies of how ideas and notions about standard English kind of come together. And the corpus kind of took all primary and secondary Ofsted reports um, into one sort of giant corpus of 102,592 kind of Ofsted reports. That being sort of unmanageable, they then randomly selected 3,000 that they that they fed into the Lanxbox software. And if you have students or if you are a student who's who's interested in doing this there are there are free versions of this kind of software that you can use yourself when you're when you're putting together your own corpus and then they kind of did searches for particular words and phrases that they thought would be interesting uh, to interrogate in a bit more detail. So they they tried to have a look at clusters of words and phrases that represented judgments about language. So they had the software kind of trawl for metalinguistic tokens, as it's called in the in the report, mm. uh, phrases like standard English or non-standard English, uh, words like errors, accent, uh, phrases like incorrect grammar or correct grammar, phrases like full sentences or appropriate speech or accurate speech or talking grammatically or talking ungrammatically, and then trolled it through for, for, you know, for what came out. And it's a really, really interesting report with all sorts of findings that came out of it. Yeah, so we we thought it's interesting in terms of what they picked up in the report as well. So there's lots of focus on discussion around standard and non-standard English, standard language ideology, uh, ideologies, standardised English, and the sort of process that's at work within schools about kind of language education. And th- there's some interesting things. We talked to Ian about this back in 2020, I think, on an episode around his work on this. And I think he just kind of started it and had also written some stuff about school slang bans. And it does pick up many of those those same themes, doesn't it? So there's, there's lots of criticism in the reports going back, well, you know, a long, long time, well, well over 100 years, but also right up to 2019 and 2020, I think, where, you know, Ofsted are, are criticising schools 
for things like you know quotation here some adults have uh, adults have weak spoken standard english and grammar too many staff make errors in their standard spoken english when they teach in some cases this means they model bad habits or teach incorrect grammar and there's always that kind of tension isn't there with with schools and education generally about standard english and mm. you know that that kind of role that teachers have it's what is certainly one worth exploring at a level because what you're doing on your course at a level is obviously you you you're challenging ideas around standard language ideologies a bit more you're querying you know where they came from you're exploring a bit more about those sort of common sense ideas that can be un- unpacked a bit more um yeah, around definitely you know, this this sort of idea that there is a correct and incorrect form of English. Yeah, um, and they, they actually go a step further in the report. They call it sonic surveillance. And there's there's this idea that as, as a sort of inspectorate role, that Ofsted's job is to somehow support this standard ideology and, and to police it in schools and that these comments in the inspectorate reports effectively is the sort of sharp end of that policing yeah. is that is that sort of you know face-to-face day-to-day communication is subjugated to a wider notion of mm. what is good and of course they they're working on more broadly exactly as you said uh, sort of unpicking the notion of, of goodness or correctness yeah, in yeah. language and really asking us to to think about about where and why that can be problematic and I think one of the things that was most interesting for me that they picked out was the suggestion that somehow modeling you know quote bad grammar equated to poor pedagogy and bad teaching and that and that really is nonsensical yeah genuinely nonsensical and that and that was really interesting for me I think that was one of the most interesting things that came out was the idea that teachers speaking a particular way are somehow worse teachers yeah and I mean this this is something we've you know we've seen a few times before isn't it there's there's been lots of coverage of teachers who've been told to change their accents there was the Alex Baratta book and research that he did a, a while ago about teachers teachers accents and that, that many of their sort of experiences about that but it's it, it's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because it, what what it suggests is, I mean, I think it's sort of two strands at work with this. You've got the whole idea about who's making the judgments, and if judgments are being made about language, the least you can really expect is for the people making those judgments to have some kind of language education themselves. And in most cases, Ofsted inspectors are not um, briefed on language; they're not linguists. And, you know, wouldn't expect them all to be linguists by any stretch, but they're not given specific language training. So many of these comments they make about, you know, bad English, incorrect pronunciation, things like that, are actually quite ill-informed. And, you know, some of the comments about sort of a lack of clarity in speech and about certain accents not being understandable, they're they're, they're basic misunderstandings of how language operates. And on another sort of strand, what you've also got is that kind of, common sense belief that standard English is good English and non-standard mm. English is bad English and bad English leads to kind of bad behaviour and lower standards. It's yeah. exactly what we've talked about before is that essentially comments here about language are not really about language. They're a proxy for something else. That essentially yeah, when they're making comments about something that's ungrammatical, the, the yeah. implicature is that it's actually about their intelligence yeah. or their yeah. capacity, you know, to effectively teach, you know, the charges, the charges in their rooms. Um, yeah. And that's... Yeah. And that again is is broadly nonsensical. And what um, is which know, is why it's is, problematic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. 
And what is standard spoken English? There is no clear definition of that. Nobody's really got a sense of that. Standard English isn't essentially a spoken form, many linguists would argue. No. And of course, this this whole idea was, of course, that when we talked about it making a splash, it was picked up by the TESS and the TESS published a piece called Does Ofsted Have a Problem with Language Policing, where they sort of quote the original research by Julia and Ian and then, you know, and then went on to, you know, to discuss it in a, in a little bit. Mm. in a little bit more detail from their point of view. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a good read. And I think that's, we'll post that the link to that in the show notes. I think it's one of those that's a, you know, a fairly kind of sympathetic framing of, of the research. And it feeds into kind of something that perhaps feels uh, even more current for, for sort of teachers in row, which is, which is this other layer on top of, of the racialized element of language, because the title of the report from Julia and from Ian is, is this idea that the, the, the years of Ofsted are white years um and that and that the listening years again something we talked about with Cameron Carr Mm. in the interview there the listening process from Ofsted as an institution is is they suggest institutionally white and that this idea around standard ideologies actually bleeds into racialized notions of language that again are deeply problematic in contexts in in particular contexts yeah yeah, and I mean, there's, there's, there's definitely that, that's a really key angle to it. And that whole sort of idea as well, I suppose, that they, they mentioned too about sort of, you know, ideas around sort of region and social class. And again, it's it's this idea that these, these sort of ideas around non-standard English become conflated with lower standards and... yeah. That's that's the other really interesting thing, you know, as somebody who likes to keep their eye on sort of language debates, um, mm. th- this this idea around particularly around educational debate of of raising standards, which is a particular discourse that comes out of the government when it comes to education. A lot of the comments in response to the original sort of research were around, you know, what's wrong with standard English? Yeah. Surely we need to teach students standard English because it opens social doors for them and that to somehow deny them access to so to to standardized forms uh, is doing them a disservice that you are essentially barring them from all of the opportunities that would be mm. open to them should they speak in an English that is considered correct and that's a really interesting one as well because that is that's a that's a broader discourse in education that that isn't just about language itself it's about it's about you know the notions of education in and of itself yeah and I mean, it's, it has it comes with its own problems, that doesn't it? Because there is behind that an assumption that if you use acceptable standardised forms of English, that those doors will immediately open to you. And of course, that is clearly not the case for lots of people. You know, it yeah. doesn't it doesn't matter if you're using you know standard forms of English. You'll be judged in other ways. Um, and yeah, they actually you know, and they actually talked to Julia in the test article where they, it sounds like they did a follow up interview with her where they put that question to her and sort of asked her about it. And she says this idea that, you know, teaching standard English uh, is about access, she says, is is part of the problem. It's that it's that narrative that that a is really pervasive, but also has endured because and I'm quoting directly here from something she said one of the reasons that the idea of standard English has endured is because it tends to up it tends to be upheld with a suggestion that we're empowering working class kids or racialized minorities because if we give them access to this language of privilege and power it can move them up a social ladder it's a social mobility narrative Uh, and what they what they take some pains to talk about is that that's actually quite problematic in and of itself and they talk 
talk about why at length again in the report and I really do urge you to go and have a look at it if this is something that you're interested in. Yeah there's some really good stuff and it's it's also worth having a look at the conversation.com article that Ian and Julia wrote and having a look at some of the responses to the article from people um, who've who've either read it or responded to the gist of it or what they think they think they've written because again that they that's great material for some language debates language discourses um, particularly if you're on the AQA course doing paper two section B these are the kinds of language discourses that are really worth exploring those discourses of deficit discourses of opportunity you know hindrance barriers and there's there's some really interesting stuff there around sort of yeah as we said sort of around race class you know access to education things like that so yeah we'll we'll share all of the the kind of links to those in the show notes and it's well worth having a look at and we're hoping we can talk to julia in a in a future episode to talk a bit more about that but we definitely go back and have a have a listen to the interview we did with Ian Cushing back in 2020 about some of the sort of themes that he's then picked up with julia in this paper Thank you.